Good morning. It's uh, good to be together. I have to admit, I talked to Kyle this morning as I came in. I walked in a little bit, well, it was later than normal, but earlier than I thought, um, and everything seemed off, right? Because I'm used to getting here a little bit earlier. This morning, when my alarm went off, I was like, what time is it? Because we're all here at one service. It's nice to see all your faces. Uh, You'll probably experience this over the summer. You'll look at people and be like, oh, I thought you went here. Because they go to 11 and you go to 9 or vice versa. And so that's part of the hope this summer is to to kind of make some of those those connections. Um, And uh, also don't point and stare when people for sure will show up at about 10.50. And they'll start walking in the back. Don't be like, ha, you missed it. Because they'll already feel silly for going, oh yeah, that was today. Today it's 10 o'clock. Um, the over-under was 5. There were like 7 people who showed up a little before 9. I hope some of you came back. I don't know, but I hope you did. Um, it is our joy and to God's glory that we can gather for worship this morning. Um, and we do celebrate they were able to gather like this. Uh, part of our purpose in gathering is to be built up, to be encouraged. Well, we believe the Holy Spirit uses gatherings like this to conform us to the image of Jesus. And to work transformation in our hearts. Today is the first Sunday of our summer worship schedule, as we've talked about a lot. One service, Sunday mornings, 10 o'clock. It's also the last Sunday, at least for the time being, um, where we will uh, have our service live streamed on Facebook. We're still looking at um, maybe being able to record the video and offer it to folks who who would like it. Um, And as always, uh, the audio from this morning will go up on our website as well. Uh, one final note, next week, June 6th, we'll start um, our summer preaching series in the Psalms. So we'll be in Psalm 12 starting next uh, Sunday, if you want to this week um, start reading ahead. And we've put together for, uh, some little journals that are on the back counter. Um, special thanks to Tim Walker for the design work on our Psalm series, and then Kyle for putting these together. We'd love to, for you to take one if you'd like one to, to bring with you on Sundays and just kind of track along the things we're learning as we work through the Psalms this summer. So that's what these are for. They're at the back counter. You're welcome to those. I think that's all I have for announcements. Um, last week we, we took, uh, so last Sunday and this Sunday are kind of grouped together. Last Sunday we kind of zoomed in to get to the heart of the gospel, reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and what Paul called of first importance. We talked about it this way, that Christ died for our sins and was raised. Right? A simple shorthand. And we need to be clear on this. Because the gospel is the thing that defines us as a people, unites us together as a people, and transforms us. In theological terms, when I say we kind of zoom in on the gospel, we're talking about the gospel as redemption accomplished. God is holy, man is dead in sin, and Christ dies to secure our redemption. And we are called, we are welcomed to respond in repentance and faith. This week, we're going to zoom out. If last week we zoomed in, this week we're going to zoom out, if you will, and look at how the gospel sits at the center of a larger picture of God's work in the universe. How is the gospel then applied? We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8 for just a little bit, so you can turn there if you'd like, Romans chapter 8. We talked some last week about the internal markers or evidence, the fruit that grows in us as the gospel is central for us both as individuals and as a church. And whether you know it or not, 
When we work through the definition and application of the gospel, as we did last week, together we are doing theology. We are, we are, we are doing the work of theology. And so today, I want to ask this question. With this theological refreshment, if you will, on the gospel, how can we think theologically about our lives? More specifically, how can we think gospelly about life? I know I made that up. That's a made-up word. But go with me. How do we determine if something, an idea, a practice, an activity, an issue, a solution, how do we determine if that something is compatible with the gospel as preached to us from the scriptures or not? And I have to admit, this particular sermon has weighed uniquely heavy on my heart this week, so I don't know if it's any good, but we're going to go there together, okay? I think a helpful way to work through this question of how we think gospelly is to look at the meta-narrative, the big story that God is working out in the universe. And here's how we are going to outline this narrative this morning, this story, the, the, the arc, if you will, of redemptive history. The shorthand looks like this, in four categories, if you will. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. It's the, the arc of redemptive history from beginning to end. It starts with creation, that God created all things, that he called them good, including creating man and woman in his own image. And that moves us to the fall of humanity into sin, whereby Adam broke the fellowship he had with God, and it also fractured the fellowship he had with Eve. And in fact, it fractured creation itself. Through redemptive history, it moves to redemption, that through Christ Jesus, speaking to the reality that all that is broken is made right only in Christ. And finally, this arc takes us to consummation, where the promise of redemption and restoration finally comes to full fruition. It's finally fulfilled, and all the promises of life eternal, all the promises in Jesus, in glory, are fulfilled. That's the arc of all human existence, all existence in general, that God has unpacked for us, creation fall, redemption, consummation. So the big idea this morning is that without the, the true gospel as our center, we will inevitably struggle under the weight of powerless and hopeless false gospels. Other things that promise to give hope, promise to answer questions, and yet will ultimately just make it worse. But with Christ's redemption clearly in view, we will be able to hopefully believe and boldly proclaim the beauty and the power of this gospel in every area of our lives. I know that's a mouthful, but let's go there together. We're going to look at a few verses in Romans chapter 8 to kind of build out this framework. So we're going to read verses 18 through 25 as the passage for this morning. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18 through verse 25. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. It's the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Without the true gospel as our center, we will inevitably struggle under the weight of false gospels, things that claim to be good news but turn out to not be. But with Christ's redemption clearly in view, we will be able to hopefully, like full of hope, believe and boldly proclaim the beauty and power of the gospel in every area of our lives. Now, a little context on Romans here. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome. Now, Romans, Paul seems to be laying out a full theological foundation for these believers in Jesus. Like, everything you'd need to know, Paul's saying to this church in Rome, I'm going to explain it to you in this letter. And so Paul goes all in, if you will, in Romans to build up and equip and prepare the church, not only with a a rich theological foundation, a library of theological truth, but also lots of practical gospel application for everyday life. Paul also weaves in and out his instruction in Romans these very hopeful, hope-filled future promises. And it's all woven together brilliantly. And this passage in Romans chapter 8 is is fairly well known. Paul is making the case here that all of his current hardships and anything that the church in Rome would be feeling the weight of, persecution, isolation, hardships, he says all these things are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. That's what Paul's saying here. And so what's helpful, I think, about this passage for our study is that Paul is pointing at something. A future hope. A future glory. And it's not just out there floating around in the future, but it's anchored to the past. In verse 19, Paul ties this hope of future glory all the way back to creation. Remember, we said Paul's basic definition of the gospel last week from 1 Corinthians 15 is that Christ died for our sins and was raised. The the theological framework for this is redemption. that, That Christ is redeeming. That he is saving his people. The gospel is applied to people in a place and time. So right here, we, we hear and respond to the gospel by faith. And, the, and that gospel is accomplishing something in 
history. And I think it's important that Paul goes all the way back to creation to set the stage for what creation is waiting for. Or to use Paul's words, why creation is groaning. So we're going to look at this this arc now of redemption, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And how each, at each stage, each movement, how the gospel helps us understand each one and how the gospel of Jesus informs them so that we can understand not only guarding us from error, from unintentionally holding on to things that are incompatible with the gospel, but also to awaken for us a glorious truth that is being revealed as God continues to unfold his story for us. So let's look at each of them. First, let's look at creation. The first thing I notice is the immediate creator and creation or creator and creature distinction that Paul makes. That is, all creation is in one category and in a completely different category is the creator. We get this all the way back at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. Right? Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God. And in a moment, we'll get to what's causing creation to groan and wait. But implied in the waiting and the groaning of creation is a deep dependence. Creation has no choice but to wait. Why? Because there is built into creation an acknowledgement that something, or in this case, someone, is greater. In this case, the Creator. Further, if you read a little bit further in Genesis, chapter 1, God says things like, let there be light, and let the waters be gathered together, and let the earth sprout vegetation, and let the waters swarm with living creatures, and let the earth bring forth beasts and livestock. Right? The Creator is... Creating. And then in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, God says this. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. In the Latin, this is the phrase imago Dei. Literally the image of God. In all of creation, humans were created unique. Amongst all creation. Well, all of creation bears the brush strokes, if you will, of God's creative power, only humanity bears his image. That's it. Verse 27 of Genesis chapter 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So so the, the scriptures tell us that God made human beings in his image, bearing his likeness, and that God made them male and female, unique in all creation and unique as a pair. That God was intentional about creating them male and female. So the fact that God is the creator and we are creation. That God made human, humankind unique amongst creation that we uniquely bear his image, imago Dei. And that God made unique distinctions amongst his image bearers as male and female. These are all things we pull out of this creation These are significant realities in the grand story of redemption. 
Why? Because anything that conflicts with these creation truths, I'm going to argue is incompatible with the gospel as revealed to us. Here's what I mean. Any worldview that puts humankind above God or that diminishes the role and need of God, that puts creation above creator or even mingles the two, loses the distinction between creator and creation, is incompatible with the gospel as revealed to us. Further, any system or ideology that denies the imago Dei that devalues human life because of skin color or ethnicity or age or viability or out of convenience is incompatible with the gospel as revealed to us. And any idea that deliberately rejects the beauty and uniqueness of God's design for humanity, made in God's image as male and female, with all their complementary attributes and beautiful symmetry, is incompatible with the gospel as revealed to us. Gospel theology starts with God, our creator, who created good things. And so when God established creation, at the end of each day, he said, it was good. Creation. He is God. We are not. He creates us and we, all of humanity, bear his image. Therefore, we have value and worth as image bearers. And there is honor due those who bear his image. And God in his divine wisdom, has made us with beautiful distinction. That's creation. Second, the fall. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that creation waits and creation is groaning. Paul uses that language. Why is creation groaning? Romans 8 verse 20, Paul says, because creation was subjected to futility, emptiness, uselessness, brokenness, Right? When God created all things, including humanity, he closed by saying it was good. And in the case of humanity, he said it was very good. But then sin enters and breaks that. And I think the, the fall of humanity into sin is tragically important to understand this story of redemption and at the heart of the gospel. That the sin of Adam is passed down through all of his descendants. That each of us, by nature, bear the sin of Adam. That marred, that obscured the image of God in us. More than that, we know this to be true as much as we want to deny it. That we are sinners not only by nature, but also by choice. Paul reminds us earlier in Romans chapter 3 that none is righteous. No, not one. Right? We don't want to, but we all have to volunteer for being in the no-not-one camp. This is an honest assessment of our state. This is the thing for which Christ died. Remember? 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died. Why? For our sins. And so here's why the awful reality of sin and the fall is necessary in understanding and applying the gospel. Because any worldview that says that, well... Humans are basically good on our own. At least we're neutral, right? That's incompatible with the gospel as revealed to us. Any philosophy that sees all the problems in life as external problems, rather than considering the often more significant problems that come from within each of us, 
I argue, is incompatible with the gospel. Because if we're not in trouble, then we don't need to be saved. And if it's not our fault, then we're not accountable. But that's incompatible with the gospels that tells us not only are we great sinners, but as we'll talk about here in a second, but we have a great Savior. Creation, God made us in His image. Fall, the sin that is present in us. We rejected God. We rejected His good work and His design in favor of our own way. And we ourselves are bearing the consequences in all creation. And so all creation groans under the weight. Which leads us to the third part of redemptive story. Redemption. This is the happy part, right? Redemption is good precisely because of what we had in creation and lost with the fall. God the Father saw fit to send God the Son to save sinners. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen? Redemption is only good if there's a bad thing from which we are being saved. And redemption is only good if change can actually happen. If we can actually be changed from the bad that we were to something else. The Bible reminds us in 2 Corinthians that in Christ, we are made new creations. And at the beginning of this chapter in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, we hang on to this hope that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This idea that change, that transformation is both necessary because of sin and actually possible seems like that should be the least controversial out of everything I've said today. But in fact, that is one of the more challenged concepts in our current culture in two ways. The first is this. There is a diminishing of the need for redemption. So the first part that kind of gets pushed down is like, well, we don't really need it. I alluded to it earlier. There's a quiet refusal to acknowledge that sin exists. The dominating cultural belief is that there's no need for salvation, so we're just fine kind of the way we are. I mean, at least we're better than Hitler. Right? I know, I just used Hitler in a sermon. It's always the go-to to, like, pick the worst possible and, like, well, at least I'm not that bad. Right? Redemption culturally then becomes some version of, well, just being true to yourself and achieving your your goals, being maybe better than you were. That's called bravery in our current context. In contrast, the gospel reminds us that our true selves, yes, bear the image of God and are utterly and wholly fractured by sin and in need of mercy and in need of rescue. All of us have need of salvation. And so grace and mercy outside of us has to be at work. Hence the beautiful simplicity of the message that Christ died for our sins and was raised. We recognize we we need that. That's the first part of this idea that seems to be oddly controversial. The other one is this. 
It's the impossibility of redemption. There's a movement of, of thought in the West and primarily in the United States that pins us, that anchors us so firmly to our sin, although it's not often referred to as sin, that it is, there, there is virtually no hope of ever being clear of it. It looks like this and sounds like this. That whatever you've done, whoever you are, whatever group you're associated with by choice or even just by group identity that you didn't choose, no matter what you do or do not do, there really is no redemption. You can never not be that person and you can never atone for or be rid of the evil associated with your actions or the group to which you belong, identify with, or assume to be. Now, this isn't new. Culture after culture, generation after generation, each choose their own set of unforgivable sins. And those who are associated with whatever is the unforgivable sin of the day are condemned forever without hope. And those who are active in, in responding to that unforgivable sin of the day are showing themselves to be the righteous ones. But this is contrary to a right understanding of the fall and of forgiveness, of sin and salvation. Anything that rejects the necessity of God's grace and mercy, anything that says we don't need this given to us, is incompatible with the gospel as revealed to us. Anything, any solution or theory that makes actual forgiveness, the ability to actually be made clean, no longer condemned, anything that makes actual forgiveness impossible and unachievable because of my group identity or because of my past sins is incompatible with the gospel as revealed to us. See, what's most disheartening to me about this and about so much of our current unrest is that there's no room for true redemption. There's lots of hand-wringing. There's lots of turning blind eyes to inconvenient history and facts. There's a lot of blame-shifting and denying of responsibility and very little humility in the extension of real tangible grace resulting in real change and full redemption. Any system that doesn't have a category whereby people can truly be changed, truly be redeemed, and no longer condemned by their sin is incompatible with the gospel. Because a system that does not have redemption can't have any real hope for the future. We just muddle around, hope we're good enough, and die. But that leads to our fourth component of the story arc of redemption, consummation. This is a word we don't use much. The basic dictionary definition is accomplishment or completion or resolution. Romans 8.23 says, We groan along with all creation as we wait for what? Paul says, We wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For the fullness of all that is promised to us to be fully realized. We are new creations in Christ, yet we remain here for a little while while we wait for our redemption to be revealed in full. I love the adopted language, and there's a whole sermon in here that, that's another time on adoption. We are adopted now into a new family. Picture this. We are pulled from our alienation and our loneliness 
and our exile and are welcomed into God's royal family as beloved children, as co-heirs with Christ, the righteous one, the holy son of God. It's like we've received the paperwork, everything's been signed off on and filed away. Our place and our inheritance is secure and we're waiting for our father to come pick us up and take us home. That's the picture we're given here. Now, sometimes in the, this redemption story arc, if you will, uh, theologians will use the term restoration here. Uh, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's a fine word. I, I love that word. Uh, uh, as a kind of a final restoring of what was lost when sin fractured creation and redemption secures restoration. But I, I like this word consummation because it seems to include not only the restoration of all things, which is needed and glorious, but also this picture of fulfillment, of completion, that every promise, every single promise to us in Christ Jesus will be fully realized. So this picture of hope and what's to come is attached to this gospel picture we talked about last week. It isn't just that Christ has died for sin, but also was raised. His resurrection is hope for us that we will also be raised with him. And here's why this is important. If our hope is only in this life, Apostle Paul says, we above all people are most to be pitied. If our hope is only here, we're the worst and we're the most pitiful. If there's nothing beyond this, then really our only hope is just what we can accomplish for ourselves in this 50, 60, 70, maybe 80 years. Good luck. Now, that's not to say there isn't work to be done here and now. There's a lot of work to be done here and now. There's a lot of the Spirit's work in and through us here and now. But if our work now is not driven by a hopeful banking on a glorious future, we are indeed pretty sad. Any hope in life's brokenness that only sees glory in fixing what is here and now, absent from any eternal perspective or future hope, if there's not a hope of future glory, then it's incompatible with the gospel as revealed to us. The first part of of, uh, Romans 8, in, in verse 23, he says, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We've been giving a, given a down payment, if you will. We, Paul, the church in Rome, you, me, because of the work of Christ, his death and his resurrection, his ascension, the sending of his Holy Spirit, we have the Spirit of God living and dwelling within us. And among the things the Spirit does for us as our teacher and as our helper, the one who empowers the church for faithful service, God the Holy Spirit is a seal and a guarantee that all of the promises of God are for us. That we are partakers in the full and majestic glory of the Lord forever. It's a promise. I think one of the major reasons for the increase of fear and anxiety and hopelessness in our current day is that everyone feels like they're losing. Everyone does. 
whatever you deem is the other side, whoever the other is, they apparently seem to be winning. And that causes us to pull back and pulls us toward despair and doom. But gospel people are hopeful people. Not happy clappy, not fake smiles and everything is fine, but hope in the midst of hardship. Truth that anchors us in tragedy. This is how Paul can say in the verse, first verse we read this morning, Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. To be gospel people is to be people filled with an unquenchable hope in the glory to come. Let me say that again. To be gospel people is to be people filled with an unquenchable hope in the glory to come. So why focus these past two weeks on the gospel? Why talk about being gospel-centered and looking at this biblical theological framework of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation? Typically, our pattern is to work through books of the Bible uh, verse by verse, section by section. These ones are a little topical. Why do this? I, as one of your pastors, we, as your elders, are charged with shepherding this flock. And a shepherd does many things. A shepherd protects and feeds and cares for the flock. And we acknowledge that Jesus himself is the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, the senior pastor, And that we serve as his under-shepherds, caring for his sheep, caring for his people, caring for his church. But it is our responsibility to, to do that, to care for, protect, encourage, feed, and build up this flock. And we read the news. We flip through the gram and scroll the Facebook page. We see how the world is just as you do. We get emails and texts asking about this thing that happened or... Over a cup of coffee, man, have you seen this? That's, that's troubling. I don't know what to do with that. Hey, have you read this book? This is a really interesting topic. I, I'd love to dive into this more. And our desire in all of that is to give humble, godly, biblical counsel to each and every one, each and everything as they come. And I've realized in the last 18 months or so that I have to work on upping my reading speed because there are so many books and articles that I'd love to get through without sacrificing my time in God's word. And I just read slow. I realized I like, I always knew I was a slow reader. And then I have like a stack of books that I'm not getting through. I'm like, I'm a really slow reader, right? And we don't need social media to tell us this. There have always been thousands of bad ideas and false gospels and counterfeits to contend with. But today, due to how the world works, every idea, no matter if it's a good idea or a terrible idea, seems to have the same platform. They all get heard equally and we're like, this is not a good thing for us. Right? So how do we know how to sort this to combat falsehood and to grow as a disciple of Jesus? I think we have to do that by coming back to some of these core things regularly, by refreshing ourselves in this foundational truth of the gospel. I've tested it out a few times. Um, I'm going to ask a question. How many of you have seen the movie, The Karate Kid, the original, right? Here's the problem. Most people in the room are like, I don't know what you're talking about. I watched Cobra Kai on Netflix, didn't understand any of it, right? The idea there is, Mr. Miyagi, I'll set it up for you and then you can go watch it. I think it, I don't know if it's on Netflix or not, but go rent it. 
There's one blockbuster in the country. I'm sure they have a copy. (laughs) The idea here is Mr. Miyagi's training Daniel to do karate, but he doesn't train him to do karate right away. He trains him to wax the car and paint the fence and paint the house and sand the deck. And he's teaching him all these moves. And Daniel gets upset. He's like, why aren't you teaching me karate? And then Mr. Miyagi tries to punch him. And Daniel defends it using some of the moves his muscles had begun to memorize by painting the fence and waxing the car. He doesn't realize it, but Mr. Miyagi's been teaching him muscle memory for karate over the last week. And he's like, oh. Right? There's a little bit of that here for us. Now, I'm not presuming to be Mr. Miyagi. He's way cooler than I am. But we, as a church, as a people, as your elders, are are, are wanting to to build up your spiritual muscle memory in core things like the gospel, the person and work of Jesus, the reality of the indwelling and at-work Holy Spirit in your life, so that when the errant punch or idea or or book or or, or situation comes your way, you have the, the spiritual muscle memory to be able to respond and go, I don't know if that works right. Gospel, you know? That's kind of the idea. If God is our good creator, making us male and female in his image, then ideas that diminish the Imago Dei or reject God's design are clearly visible to us. They're easier to go, that doesn't quite jive with what I know God has revealed. And we can compare it to a gospel-centered biblical theology about God and about humanity. If sin in the fall truly is our condition outside of Jesus, then we can with confidence and humility identify and reject any worldview that asserts, no, I'm I'm pretty good just how I am. We'd recognize that the idea of just being our best selves, if everyone could just be their best selves, the world would be a better place. We recognize that as hot garbage. It leads to destruction and helplessness. But if we recognize that, yes, sin is real and that Christ has come to redeem us from our sin, now we have hope. Now there's a possibility that I can actually change. And if there's hope in the consummation of peace forevermore, then we are held back from hopelessness when the world often seems like a lost cause. Right? Our hope for you... And our hope as, our, as your elders and as your church is to equip you with this gospel framework so that you will be able to identify and sort through all the partial and false truths, things that promise a solution but offer at best temporary help but bring with them helplessness and fear. We want to build you up in your gospel fluency so that you are filled with joyful hope in believing and humble confidence in proclaiming the power and the beauty of the full true gospel in every area of your life. My prayer for us is that God would continue his work in and among us for his glory. That his gospel would continue to be proclaimed and that we would, by his grace, see the fruit of it for our good and in the lives of the people around us who are changed by it, so that together we might share, not just in hope here, but eternal and lasting joy. Let's pray. Father, it is often hard for us 
to fully believe what's easier for us to say that the hardships and sufferings of this time are not worth comparing because we are still waiting. We, we believe that you're good. We believe that your promises are sure. And yet we hope for what we can't yet see. Would you refresh us with a clear picture of your redemption of us in Christ Jesus? Help us to see you for who you are, that you're working out your plan of redemption from creation, from let there be light, from in the beginning, all the way through till glory. And would you build up and equip your church to be faithful agents of gospel hope? We ask that you'd continue this work in us for our good, for conforming us to the image of your Son, for your glory, that you might be known. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ who rescues us and redeems us. His promises are ours. Amen. And amen.